On this episode, through hiking, Wolf's Law, stretching your hip flexors, and nose breathing. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. Your hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure podcast. I, I'm pretty stoked today that we have Lee Welton with us. Lee is a physical therapist assistant and a personal trainer and a PCT through hiker. He had done the uh, hike to the PCT in, in 2018. And one of the things that kind of really hit home with him was how many people had to bail off the trail based because of injuries and other things that are totally preventable. And so that's kind of been his focus with Trailside Fitness. So Lee, welcome to the show. Is, is there anything else you'd like to add about yourself and your background? Yeah, thanks for having me on guys. Super excited to be here. Um, yeah, Trailside Fitness kind of came about through um, my own hike preparation for the PCT and recognizing that injuries were the biggest issue preventing hikers from finishing. Um, and it's also one of the things that you can most easily control. Uh, so being able to, to train folks and guide them through the physical side and the mindset side uh, definitely helps people stay on trail longer, which is ultimately what most of us are doing this for. So that's kind of where I got to where I'm at today. What drew you into doing something like the PCT? I mean, what did you like build up to that over time? Or was it something that you had, how long had that been sort of like on your to hike list? Whew. Uh, probably percolated for about a decade and a half. Um, I'd heard about it and never really um, spent a lot of time investigating it. And I, as I got into my mid thirties, I said, you know what, I'm gonna hike it before I turn 40. Um, so age 38, I started training. I hiked the trail at 39, uh, and I finished with like two months to spare <laughs> on finishing before my 40th birthday. Um, but definitely something that I've been into for a long time. As far as, you know, my backpacking history, I've been, you know, regular week long trips or so for about 20 years. Um, I did, a, a trek through the Dolomites in Italy, which was, uh, 10 nights, 11 days. And that was kind of a testing uh, ground for me to see how I held up physically over multiple days and in varied terrain. Um, and I came back from that trip. I held up great. I loved it. I thought, you know what? All right. PCT is definitely a green light. So it kind of took off from there uh, being a more serious uh, endeavor. Severia, you did the Dolomites last year, right? I, I did. Um, it, yeah. it sounds like it might have been a little, a little bit different. different. <laughs> well, I mean, even if you threw, even if you threw hike, so we were doing like a hotel-based trip in the Dolomites, but even yeah. if you threw hook, threw hike the Dolomites, it's still different <laughs> because you're at these, you know, mountain refuges and like there are a few hills and there's amazing foods. It's a little different than the PCT. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say it's yeah. a fair comparison of the two. Like you're definitely like the lodging is a little more cush usually and the food is obviously better. But um, for me, it was, we had to carry full the packs. Day. Yeah, so it was still a fairly heavy pack doing the day-to-day -day stuff and just seeing how we liked it and if it was going to work out. And thankfully it did. And obviously Northern Italy is stunning, so it's easy to kind of <laughs> suck it up and walk through the Dolomites. <laughs> well, that was and quite a he... difference though, right? I mean, 11 days to, you know, what, three, four, four months? I don't know. How, how long, how many days did it take for you to do the PCT? I think it was 156. Yeah. So, yeah. Five but, months. Uh, quite a yeah. 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 So that was, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's 
That's uh, quite so, a thing. So Lee, what chicken or egg? So did you do the PCT and then become a, uh, the, did you do the PCT and become a PT or did you, <laughs> were you a PT and you did the PCT? I was about to say that. I was like, oh Lord. <laughs> Good job. No, you stuck in the end though. You pulled it off. Good job, sir. Got the, I made the landing. <laughs> you stuck the landing. That's all the, that's all the judges care about. So. Nailed it. <laughs> um, so I was actually a physical therapist assistant um, as I was preparing to do the PCT. And I got my personal training license uh, shortly after I became a, a PTA. And I actually was looking for a program to, to train myself and get ready for the PCT. And there just wasn't anything that really was out there. Everything that I did find was kind of contradictory or just was wildly um, like difficult on like the time frame, so I just kind of came up with my own plan and program based off of my knowledge in, in physical therapy and uh, being a personal trainer. And I I didn't get it 100% right. I probably did way too many lunges and not near enough you know loaded pack walks and those sorts of things. But um, I started the trail great, no injuries, um, nice uh, easy transition from life to the trail. Um, so I think what that really kind of laid the foundation for what eventually became the, the system that I use now. And, and why don't we just kind of go back to the beginning on, on this process? Like what are the things that somebody who's planning to do a, a through hike needs to consider? Like, is it joints? Is it muscles? I mean, what is like, you know, what are the biggest things? Cause obviously this, it's a, that's a huge endeavor. I mean, for a trip that long, what do you see as the most, like the foundation of thing of, of like, say the parts of your body or the different things that you need to you know focus on prior to a through hike? Yeah, for me, it was focusing on the areas that are most commonly injured. And for hikers, that's pretty much everything below the knee. Um, so a lot of overuse injuries for like shin splints, um, Achilles tendonitis, uh, calf pain, foot pain, any of those issues to me seem like really needed to be on the forefront of any training program. Um, a lot of the issues hikers are having are from doing too much too soon. And those tissues in particular need to be trained so they can handle that stress of doing a through hike. So um, really putting a lot of emphasis on those with any program, I think is key. The cardio stuff is also important, but it doesn't need to be high intensity. It's just something lower intensity, kind of the um, low intensity, long duration. So kind of like the more boring type of cardio. Um, but that translates really well to hikers once they get on trail. And then certainly just regular strength training, legs, core, upper body, uh, just a good mix of push and pull exercises for those regions. Uh, it tends to set up most folks really well. Um, you know, there's also some important, I was like, build it up so you can lose it all. Right. <laughs> yeah, essentially. Right. Cause the, you're not going to finish the through hike in your best shape ever. You're just, you're not, you want to start the trip in your best shape ever. Um, and that doesn't mean it's the most muscle you've got, or maybe the best cardiovascular fitness. You're doing a very long endurance, um, uh, hike you need to make sure that you've got really good endurance so like high repetitions with some of the exercises or maybe lower repetitions and more weight depending on where you're at with your training cycle um, making sure you're doing some loaded pack work some hill intervals some training hikes and progressively building up all those areas through the course of a program so um, yeah as you get to the trail certain muscle groups are going to atrophy a little bit and your body is going to become much more efficient so you know, like you see a lot of the, the guys that come off the trail, for example, their upper bodies are, are smaller. They kind of like the T-Rex is the joke. You've got these little T-Rex arms and these really great well-toned legs. Um, but that's just your body becoming efficient. You don't need to do push-ups and pull-ups and those sorts of things on the trail to maintain upper body mass. 
um, you don't need that. And it's going to be a waste of the energy that you're taking in and, and drain your resources even more when really your body is already adapting to the trail and kind of maintaining what you need to continue with your hike. Lee, you had mentioned uh, loaded pack hikes, and that was one of the things that we had as part of our the training. When, when my wife and I did the John Muir Trail in 2010, um, you know, I same kind of thing. You know, I didn't. There wasn't really a training program out there. I kind of put together my own for us. And loaded pack hikes was a component, one component of that. And uh, we successfully completed the trail over 22 days. We had a great experience. But the one thing that she'll she'll tell you is that she wishes we had done more loaded pack hikes. So talk a little bit about why that's you know loaded pack hikes, what they are, and like what's it, why is it so important? Yeah, and I think like most of this, like it depends, and there's a few different approaches to take. And for my clients, I typically would start them out with a pack that's maybe ten percent of their body weight, and it's just forty five to sixty minutes to go out and do a walk just straight out the door. It doesn't have to be hills or anything crazy over the course of their program, which may be three or four months, maybe longer. We'll build up that pack weight, but keep the time frame the same. And this exposes your body to the heavier pack weight, gets your feet used to carrying that load. It's great for the core. It's some really good cardio. We're going to focus on nose breathing during that event. Um, but it's a really great way to gradually build up uh, your, your ability to carry a heavier pack the training hikes are kind of like part two. So they're going to be a longer duration event. So maybe you're out there for three or four hours, or maybe it's um, six or eight miles to begin with. And then like everything else, we gradually build up the pack weight um, and the distance simultaneously. I think uh, an approach that a lot of people take as well, I'm going to carry a 30 pound pack on the PCT. I'm going to start with a 30 pound pack and then just build up my miles, which is way more difficult um, and your risk of injury goes up too your body is not used to carrying that 30 pound pack and doing all those miles to me it makes much more sense to build up the mileage and the pack weight simultaneously and your body is able to adjust much easier which in the long run reduces your risk of injury you know i have for all the hiking back everything i've never once done a a, a loaded pack <laughs> training hike but I, I think i started backpacking so long ago and so young i'm also a bigger guy so the weight you know what I mean? As a percentage of my body and what I'm sort of used to doing, it never felt like, you know, that much of a chore. But I just look at that and I'd see people doing it. I'm like, I can understand why they're doing it. I'm just like, but if I don't need to carry that backpack, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so don't go with no. Lee. Lee's the expert. I'm not. I'm just, I'm just a Sasquatch sized hiker so don't listen to me but yeah um, lee you mentioned doing the pack weight to get your feet used to it versus like other parts of your body and i have a question about that so i did mm -hmm. the tahoe rim trail uh oh my gosh a decade ago now in 2013 <laughs> that's mind-blowing to say um but when i was doing it one of the things that i noticed is that like my feet felt like they were on fire like it, my, it just, it wasn't like they weren't, it wasn't like a muscle sore. They were just on fire and it wasn't blisters. And I'm just wondering, is that like circulation part of maybe? just like the impact? My boots, like there was no blisters, like my boots weren't too tight. It was the weirdest thing. And then when I asked some PCT hikers that we ran into about it, I was like, do your feet ever stop hurting? And they were like, no. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, no. oh Lord, three months of like, this doesn't go away. Cause we met them at like mile thousand and we were on mile hundred and I and it was like, okay. And they were like, no, never stop. So any, is that like an injury thing? Is that a muscular thing? Like nerves maybe yeah. like or circulation Nerves, probably. Yeah. Right. One of those two. Yeah. If it's, 
if it's burning, I would probably classify that more as like nerve uh, related. And there are some nerves in lower legs. Certainly if like socks are too tight or if your shoe isn't nice quite right, that can lead to some issues. A lot of us, if we have ankle range of motion that's less than ideal, we tend to push off more on the outside of our foot and that can compress a nerve uh, in between like your third and fourth toe. Sometimes that can lead to numbness or like a Morton's neuroma type thing. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of through hikers, like, yeah, like your feet are going to be stiff, sore, achy. It's a lot of miles and you're wearing basically tennis shoes without a lot of great support. Um, if the feet aren't strong, as they get tired and fatigued, you tend to over pronate more. So your foot flattens out more. Um, and a lot of times that can lead to other issues further up the chain. So maybe like calf or shin issues. So good arch support is always key to make sure that the feet are well supported. And those loaded pack walks all support that. It's a shorter distance, typically with a heavier pack to get your body used to that. You can build up that foot strength simultaneously uh, with, your, with your core work carrying the pack. Um, and then on the hike, like shoes make a big difference. You know, if you have something with more of a arch support, that can be really key or switching out your shoes more frequently. A lot of through hikers are, they'll pride themselves on 700 miles on a pair of shoes and they're just trashed at the end of that 700 miles, those shoes. Um, for me, I would switch them out three to 400 miles religiously and my feet always felt better after I did that. Um, but I still, same as everyone else, hiker hobble, like no matter how much you maintain and take care of these issues, like they're still gonna pop up. It's a part of through hiking, but I think it's how you manage it is gonna be key. So frequent rest breaks, stretching, massage, those sorts of things versus ignoring it or just taking ibuprofen and saying, oh, well, it's just a part of the hike, it's supposed to hurt, which isn't a, a very good approach. I was like, I'm like, I'm like, I was like, I had one question and then you put me in and then you said something else. And I was like, oh no, what about that question? Okay. So first question is, um, for footwear, you know, I feel like there's, as things have progressed, it's now trail runners, right? Everyone's wearing tennis shoes, trail runners versus boots. Do you have any thoughts on boots versus the lighter weight trail running shoe? Um, so for me, I do much prefer the lighter weight trail shoes, but there's a caveat to that. A lot of those are zero drop and a lot of people have a hard time adjusting to the zero drop shoes. And that basically means the toe box and the heel are the same height. There's not like a rise in the heel end of the shoe. Um, if you're used to wearing shoes that have the higher heel height, that can shorten the Achilles over time. And if you make a quick switch to the zero drop shoes now your Achilles is being asked to lengthen which is difficult for a lot of people and that can affect foot uh, issues it can affect ankle problems so respecting the fact that it can take some time to transition into zero drop shoes um, and I think that's more particular for like the trail runners because most hiking boots themselves are going to have a higher or a stacked heel um, which for whatever reason maybe it's just design style for most of those vendors but um, there are pluses and minuses to each, right? Trail runners are great. They're lightweight. They're moderately durable um, versus a hiking boot, which has maybe more footbed support. The ankle support in the taller boots, I think the research has been shown to be less effective. It's not going to prevent you from rolling an ankle, for example. So there's really not much difference in terms of safety from like a thick, heavy hiking boot uh, like you might have seen in like the 80s or 90s to like the, the ultras or whatever folks are wearing now. Um, so sometimes it comes down to just comfort, like what works for you and not doing what most people tend to do. For me, the, the ultras worked great. Uh, for my wife, when she hiked, it, they were not a good fit. She needed something with a little bit more of a heel and she did much better when she switched back. So the other question I had is you'd mentioned sort of that ignoring, you know, listening to your body um, as you're hiking and like stopping and, you know, massaging and doing stretching before, like, like ignoring the pain, ignoring the pain, ignoring the pain. 
So when, like, when do you know something's just being twingy or annoying? And when do you know that something's leading to injury? Cause I just had this recently where my left knee was like, I, I taught, like I say talk, it was talking to me, you know, I'm like, my knee's talking to me. Like I notice that something's twingy, but it's not painful. So at what point do you, are you listening to that twinge as like a potential for something worse or is it just a twinge? Yeah. Great question. Um, it depends. So there's a lot of it comes down to um, like, are you paying attention to the signals you're getting? And there's good pain and there's bad pain. So uh, bad pain in this case would be sharp, stabbing, electric, burning, um, pain with every step. Those would be signs that something is not right. And your intuition is going to tell you something is off the rails here. Like I need to stop and investigate what's going on versus a pain that's maybe like your muscles are stiff and sore from working out, like that would be a good pain. Or if you did a bunch of ascending or descending the day before and your, and your quads are a little bit tighter sore, that's more appropriate for what you should expect. You get into trouble when you just start completely ignoring any of those signals. Typically pain is a lagging indicator, so it comes uh, after your body has, can't cover up what's happened any longer. So let's take a, a, an Achilles issue, for example. At some point, your calves are going to feel tight, and that's your body sending a signal that, hey, something needs stability or movement or addressed here, but it's not going to give you, your brain isn't going to send you a signal right away that says, you need to take care of this. It's very subtle, so you have to pay attention to these little cues. If you ignore it, eventually that, that Achilles may start to burn or get a little bit tighter, and now your body's like, look, we gave you the warning light. It wasn't addressed. Now we're moving it to more of a stoplight where things are going to be um, more problematic, more aching, more pain, more consistent. Um, and it's going to be more severe in how you need to address that specific issue. So if you're able to catch some of these warning signs beforehand and manage them, you have a much better chance of staying on trail longer. And I think that's where the self-care piece comes in. Doing daily stretches or massages for some of these specific areas like calves, shins, feet, um, hips, quads, whatever is giving you grief and checking in with your body. If you're doing this daily, you're kind of recognizing the areas that might feel tight or need to be stretched. And these are easily things you could you could do on trail. There's even some really basic strength things you could do on trail if needed. It's not my preferred method to have folks do exercises while they're out there, unless it's something more specific, like for an ankle stability drill or something like that, if they're in camp and they're, they're up for it. But um, I think if you're you're being mindful and you're asking yourself the question like is this good or bad and the thought is yes or no that's your answer and if you're really not sure always err toward being conservative and saying okay next time i get to town i'm gonna take some time and investigate this reach out to blaze physio or um, or myself or someone who maybe a doctor in town that can look at it and maybe assess you and see what may be going on and give you some direction from there the thing to not do is just keep pressing forward because you're going to light the the wheels on fire and eventually they're going to come off and your hike is going to end. So if you're paying attention to these issues and you're managing them appropriately, instead of just saying, I'm going to push through, um, your, your odds of success are going to be far greater. One of the things that I've always experienced on longer, you know, like multi-week backpacking trips is that in the morning or, you know, like in the mornings when I get up in particular, you know, like everything's a little bit creaky you know, just kind of getting warmed up and started, you know, like my feet hurt, my joints are like, ah, and, uh, and then once I get warmed up and start moving, everything kind of comes back together and falls in, falls in line again. Um, <laughs> what are some of the things that we can, you know, is there, is that just inevitable that that's kind of the way it is or are there things that we can do 
to mitigate that? Yeah. So, and I think for everyone, it's going to be a little more specific. Some people, younger hikers in particular, maybe are a little less stiff in the morning compared to some of those older guys. What, 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 are, you, what are you saying there? Uh, <laughs> As someone in my mid-40s, I can relate. <laughs> so um, it's getting out of bed now without groaning is, is a victory. So uh, I think if you're, if you're doing a through hike, you know, once you, or even a long distance hike, once you get to camp, start with some self-care and recovery, then um, there's a lot of things you can do stretch-wise while your water's boiling or your food's prepping or whatever you're doing. That will help just kind of um, reset your body and just address some of the tightness that you're going to feel from the day hiking. That's going to make your sleep a little more comfortable. When you wake up in the morning, just a really basic stretch routine, maybe pulling your knee to your chest, maybe bending your knees and rocking them right to left. Um, there's a lot of simple stretches and things you can do in the tent that make it easier just to get up and get out of bed. Sleeping on a cold, hard ground makes most bodies stiff. Um, but then once you get up, uh, you can start moving a little bit more, maybe do a couple of deep squats or grab a tree and just kind of sit down and just stretch your hips out. Hiking is one of those sports that doesn't really use a large range of motion for your joints. You know, if you think about walking, the hips are moving some, but you're not really getting much below, like hips below your knees. Um, so spending some time in those positions is going to help those joints feel less stiff and cumulatively, if you're doing these throughout your hike, once you get back, your ankles, knees, and hips are going to feel much better, um, over the course of the day. And then at the end of your hike, instead of just completely ignoring these things and saying, well, I'll just get up, put my pack on and just kind of warm up as I get moving. Um, maybe you need to walk five minutes before you decide you're going to do a little bit of stretching and, and that's fine. Um, but I think if you can just do some deep uh, like hip stretches. So again, just like sitting down in the bottom of the squat position for, I don't know, 30 seconds or so usually does it. That helps to just open things up a little bit. Maybe like downward dog is a really good one. Like there's some really easy, basic stretches anyone can do that are really going to have a big impact. And like, ideally, how long before you start a through hike do you think people should start like a training regimen? I mean, do you have like, you know, programs like a month before, two months before, whatever, but what would be like, if it were you and you were going out again, how long before you hit the trailhead would you be? Would you start? Uh, so for me, my journey was a little different. So I was doing CrossFit pretty regularly, and I did that up until probably like December 2017. And then I switched over to doing some more specific hiking stuff. My start date for the PCT was uh, March 22nd. Um, so that gave me uh, three and a half, four months or so that I could do something more specific for the endurance side of things. Um, and that I thought would be more beneficial than doing like general strengthening like CrossFit or something that's more high intense that wouldn't serve me as well once I got onto the trail. I would say for most people, three months minimum, four months would be more ideal and six months would be like a great time frame. Um, for most people, realistically, three months is a good measure of time. You're going to see a lot of progress in the course of 12 weeks or that three months. Four months gives you a little more wiggle room with preparation around family, work, any other emergencies that may come up or illness. Um, it, it gives you that that flexibility should should something come up versus a three-month plan where you've got to be a little more specific and, and regimented with your program. Six months I like better because it does, um, it does help your body adapt more long-term. Tissues like tendons and ligaments tend to take six or seven months to completely regenerate um, where muscles are on a shorter time frame. So if you're able to spend six months continually um, providing stress to tendons and ligaments, now those tissues have had a chance to become stronger and more robust through the course of six months. 
that when you start your trip, they're in a much better position to handle the stress and strain of hiking every day versus someone who's maybe had three months of somewhat consistent workouts. So wait, so ligaments and knees, tendons, all that stuff can actually like improve through work. I'm just curious because it feels like mine only get work, like just a slow, slow, steady deteriorating, uh, you know, march to, to before I need to replace every joint below my waist. Yeah, it, it does. You know, exercise is basically good stress. It's uh, it's stressing the tissues, ligaments, bones, all those things that need that specific type of um, engagement. And on the flip side, your body is going to respond. It's called Wolf's Law. Basically, the, the effort you put in, your body is going to respond in kind and it's going to produce a stronger, more robust tissue, whatever that, that may be. Um, so yeah, if you're spending time consistently stressing your body and you're at, you're progressing the workouts, so the load, the endurance, the time under tension, whatever variable you want to plug in there, um, your body will, will become stronger, more resilient in those, in those ways. So, you know, they'll say the best uh, thing you can do for arthritis or creaking knees is exercise strength to support the joint. You can't really improve an arthritic joint with exercise, but you can lubricate the surfaces. You can keep them healthier. You can maintain them longer and stay in your more native tissue versus having to go out and get a joint replacement sooner. And there's a lot of variables and why people might need a joint replacement and those sorts of things. But I think if you're looking for general joint health and then tissue health, some sort of consistent strength routine that's going to address all of the different um, aspects of, of training. So the cardio piece, the strength piece, uh, good mobility for joints is going to be pretty key as well. And is Wolf's Law named after like a doctor wolf or like the actual animal wolf? Or I mean, if it's a yes. law like a lawyer named wolf. Right? <laughs> an actual wolf. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. an actual guy. Yeah. It's an actual guy. Okay. So it is yeah. a doctor wolf. All right. I was yeah. just kind of curious. Like tennis players, for example, if you did an x-ray, you know, if, if they serve with their right hand, their their arm bones in their right arm are going to be much thicker, more robust than their left hand, which is their non-serving and hitting hand. And that's that stress applied to that right hand that makes that bone and those tissues more resilient than the hand that's not getting that sort of um, like specific like serving and hitting um, uh, so, experience. so Jimmy Connors actually had bones that were the same in both arms. Sorry, that was a tennis joke that almost <laughs> nobody's going to get. But yeah. The two-handed forehand, I don't know, whatever. Okay, sorry. I, I, I don't know why I bother with sports jokes on this podcast, but every once who, in a while who, I sneak one in. Who is Jimmy Connors again? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not only that, an old sports joke, but you're old, yeah. Jeff. You should have gotten that. You should have. I, I, yeah, you know yeah, Jimmy. I know, don't tell I know who Jimmy Connors is. Don't tell is, me yeah. you don't know who Jimmy Connors is, Jeff. Come on, come on. That's your that's your era more than mine. So, <laughs> hey Lee. So one of my favorite things to do when I'm on a long hike is uh, when we when we stop to take a little snack or whatever midday. I I like to stop by a you know a creek, a little stream, take off my shoes, take off my socks, let them kind of air out and soak my feet in that cold water. And I feel like that's a really great way for me to like do a little self care that doesn't really require much, honestly, but it's like feels good. You know, afterwards, my feet feel like new again, you know, like I'm fresh and rejuvenated. What are some of the little tips or tricks that you have for kind of self care on the trail? Yeah, I think soaking your feet in the stream is super easy to do. And it just, it does feel good, especially at the end of the day or, or lunch break. Um, for me, I like to break it down into like rest stop activities and then end of day activities. So anytime I would stop and take a break, 
um, on a day hike or PCT hike, socks and shoes come off immediately. Take those things off, let, let them air out. Um, and then I actually, because I'm sort of lazy, I flip my shoe on edge. And then as I'm eating, I would rub my foot over the edge of my shoe to kind of massage my foot out, um, which I think is... Well, I, if I'm maybe so bold, it's brilliant. I can eat, which I need to do, and I can also massage my feet, which is great. I don't need my hands for it. So um, that was kind of a win-win. Um, and then, you know, inevitably, once I'd get done with my rest stop routine, which is usually some sort of like shoe foot massage, uh, maybe a calf stretch, maybe um, a rub twist and stretch for my foot. So rub the bottom of your foot for 20 seconds. Uh, 20 seconds, you're going to pull your toes back and maybe curl them under, just give them some motion. And then twisting the sole of your foot kind of in and out for 20 seconds. So just kind of giving that foot some love. Um, that always seemed to make the next few miles of my hike like feel like they did in the morning, just pain-free and more comfortable. Um, and I think especially toward the end of the day when you're really dreading those last few miles to camp, this always made a big difference for me. So definitely recommend some sort of like rest stop routine. Um, Calf stretching is always pretty key and super easy to do while you're out on the trail too. And I think that's really important as well as a good shin stretch. Those things just feel good. Those muscles get worked a lot. Your shin muscle, obviously every time you pick up your foot, that muscle is contracting to pick up your toes. But every time that heel hits the ground, that same muscle has to also um, work under control to lower your foot back down. So your foot doesn't just slap the ground. So the, those shin muscles get a lot of work and they definitely need some love. So maybe grab a trekking pole and massage through that, that shin muscle while you're moving your foot up and down. Super simple, super effective. My in-camp routine would be a little more in-depth, um, and it's more just hitting some of the bigger joints, like maybe the hips. Uh, maybe I'm doing some upper body stretches or some sort of spine rotating exercise. There's one called an open book that I like a lot, where you just kind of reach up, back, and behind you. It stretches out the chest and the side. Um, it just feels really good. A lot of these you can find on my YouTube channel and stuff too, So, um, or just Google it. But I think if you've got something that works specifically for you and addresses the areas that you need addressed, so maybe your hips feel fine, but your shoulders get really tight, knowing some things you can do to loosen up your shoulders once you get to camp or take a rest break is going to be very important. Mm -hmm. I find that I need to stretch my hip flexors no matter what I do. You know what I mean? Oh, got out of bed, got to stretch my hip flexors. <laughs> oh, on the couch watching TV, better stretch my hip flexors. Um yeah, that's, that's a hard one. Um, I, for shin splints, I've always, not so much for like when I'm hiking or doing a long hike, but I've always, someone years ago told me calf raises, um, you know, and I, I don't know, I guess like when you're not, when you're hiking, but in training or whatever, do cal is that right? Is that the correct thing? Cause that's what I've always sort of done. And I honestly don't know if it's just the, the, they go away for through training naturally, or if the, if the calf raises are helping. Yeah, so a lot of times with some of those injuries, there is an imbalance in strength between some of the muscle groups in the lower leg. So yes, stronger calves can help um, offset some of the, the shin muscle issues. It's the tibialis anterior is the big muscle on the front. Um, there's also some specific work you can do to strengthen that muscle. So maybe just standing toe raises, just kind of rocking uh, up on your heels or bringing your toes up. Um, and you can do those from the floor. You can do them elevated so your toes get more range of motion. So something specific for those that specific muscle group can be very helpful as well. Um, and I think for a lot of folks, uh, that's is where like the training hikes come in, the loaded pack work. You're again loading those tissues up. You're putting yourself out there, getting the miles in, getting the time in. Those those muscles are going to have a chance to now adapt better than you going from your couch and then hitting the trail and trying to do 20 miles to Lake Marina, which is not going to be good. 
Um, so I think if you're if you're taking the time and addressing some of these issues like we talked about in the beginning, some of these lower leg issues that are so common, you can really offset a lot of the common injury issues that are going to pop up. Lee, you'd mentioned earlier, you know, if somebody's injured, like coming off the trail, taking a break, reaching out to somebody like yourself to get assessed and kind of figure out what the injury may be. Um, how much of your work do you do virtually? And, you know, how much are you able to do assessments and sort of get people back on track from a from a virtual standpoint versus in person? Yeah, good question. So with my degree, I, I don't actually do any diagnosing or much assessing. A lot of times I'm just like, hey, where does it hurt? And they point to a spot. And then based off my experience in education, I can usually tell them like, hey, this is probably what's going on. Let's try some of these things and see what it is. Whereas someone like Blaze Physio, who is a physical therapist and, and actually can do virtual sessions with people like physical therapy wise, or can actually maybe meet with them along the trail, depending on where they are. Um, she can give you something more specific and maybe uh, more special testing to determine exactly what's going on. Um, but I do converse with hikers a lot through the hiking season. They'll send me a message, you know, I'm having shin issues or calf or something like that. And I'm happy to take time to, to chat with folks and try and give them some things they can work on while they're out there to keep moving. Realistically, a lot of times for overuse injuries, um, it can be very tough to overcome. Two days rest in town is not going to fix it, and you might feel better at the end of those two days, but as soon as you put the pack on and start walking, the issue is going to pop back up. Overuse injuries typically need a more specific type of rehab um, than just either ignoring it or thinking rest is going to solve it. Um, it's taken some time for that tissue to get inflamed. It's going to take some time for it to, to recover, and continuing to hike 20 plus miles a day is not really going to help it recover in the way that it needs to long term. So one thing I've found, and tell me what you think on this, is I've always found that I'm a cyclist. I do like road cycling as well. I almost find that's better training for hiking than, say, jogging or running is. And I feel like you use the same muscles a little bit more, you know, than you would be like climbing on hiking and that kind of thing. Do you ever like uh, recommend cycling or have cycling, you know, as a training regimen? Or do you stick mostly with hiking for hiking? Do you, do you recommend jogging for hiking? Like, what do you think, you know, as far as cardio training? You know, leading out. I know you focus more maybe on joints and that kind of stuff and, and whatever. What do you think are the better ways to train? Uh, I think any type of off foot conditioning is really important. So cycling, rowing, um, it could be an air bike. Um, those those are great. It's great conditioning. It is great muscular endurance and strength as well. There's a lot of ways you can play with intervals and those sorts of things to make them more fun. Um, so you're not just trying to set a pace and maintain it. I think it's a great opportunity also to work on nose breathing, which is really important uh, for hikers. Um, the the events I would try and steer away from are things like jogging and running, high intensity training like box jumps, burpees. Like no no hiker needs to do burpees or box jumps. It's Yay. not going to translate. It's, yeah. <laughs> well you hear that, everyone? <laughs> Lee has given you present, uh, permission to not do burpees and box jumps. So. I'll write you a note if you need one. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, so those those activities can be great for some people to improve general fitness, but doing those movements is not going to translate well to the trail, which is any training program should it set you up from the gym to the trail uh, very smoothly. Things like uh, box jumps are not going to do that and, and burpees. So, um, and, and to that end, I would also say running and jogging tend to have a higher uh, injury rate than most other types of cardio training. And for most people, they think, all right, if I'm going to train for a hike, I should do some cardio. So they start jogging and running probably feel good for a month or two. And then all of a sudden the foot starts to ache or you got this shin thing going on or the calf flares up. 
Um, and that's because running mechanics aren't great. You're maybe doing too many miles too soon. There's a lot of variables again and, and what can cause issues there. Um, so I would tend to steer people away from jogging and running as a, a means to prepare. You can do tempo walking, so maybe walk fast for a minute. Um, not like speed walking, but maybe walking with a purpose or a little more intensity. And then take the next minute to just do a recovery pace. Just slow down, get your, your breathing back, make sure the legs are feeling good. And then again, for another minute, pick up the pace and continue. Um, and then just repeat that process for a week. At the end of that week, week two starts, now you do two minutes of higher intensity walking with that one minute of recovery. And then you build up slowly that way. You don't need to have a pack on for that. That can be just out for a walk, you know, with your dog or, or just around the neighborhood. Uh, but that's a really great way to, to target the same muscles you would get with jogging and running. You're going to increase your heart rate, but not to the point where it's above a threshold that's going to be beneficial for hikers. Um, and you're going to work on speed and endurance as a hiker, which most folks are, are interested in. You're the first person I've ever heard describe as intervals as fun, but you know. They're so fun. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, uh, Lee, you've, a couple times you've mentioned nose breathing so and, and that it's important. Talk a little bit about that. Why is it important and wh how does that work? Yeah, so your intensity for workouts matters. And uh, nose breathing is a great way to regulate some of that intensity. And it also specifically translates well to the trail for hikers. If you think about hiking, for the most part, your heart rate's probably, we'll say like 120 to maybe 140, depending on like the, the steepness of, of terrain and probably even lower than 120 for the most part. It's a low intensity activity. You can carry on conversations, you're laughing, you're joking until you get to the hills where then it's maybe a little bit more intense. So because most of the work we're doing is a lower intensity, it makes sense we wanna train that system specifically. And again, nose breathing is a great way to, to stay in that, that zone. Additionally, nose breathing will have numerous benefits to you physiologically. So when you take a nose breath, your, uh, the way your nose system works, it creates a gas called nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is a gas that opens up the blood vessels. It's a vasodilator. And that makes the delivery of oxygen and other nutrients through your blood system way more efficient. Um, it also keeps the balance of oxygen um, and CO2 balanced in your body. When you're mouth breathing, you're trying to blow off more CO2 and you're not taking enough oxygen. So it just gets worse and worse and worse. And you start breathing heavier and harder and eventually you have to stop. With nose breathing, that balance of gases stays relatively even, and you can keep your intensity um, at a higher level and have much more control of your breathing and your heart rate throughout. So if you're training to do um, like a through hike and you're doing some hill intervals, there may be times where you need to take some mouth breaths, and that's fine. But if you can do the majority of that work with the nose breathing uh, as a focus, you're going to have far more benefits to your physiological system, your cardiovascular endurance, um, mostly because you're keeping a lot of that, those gases balanced in your body better. You're not kind of chasing that, that scoop of oxygen with a big mouth breath like you might traditionally do with like running or sprinting. Um, there, it does take time like any other thing for your body to adjust. So your, your cardiovascular system will certainly adapt. Um, your nasal passages will adapt. Sometimes when people start nose breathing, they say, oh, my nasal passages feel dry or maybe they're making more snot or whatever. That's your body responding to that exercise and that activity. Um, and this is actually something I was really curious about. So I tested it on myself and I did a, a 5,000 meter row and I did it just all out, like max effort I could do, mouth breathing, whatever I needed to do. Um, and we'll say it was 20 minutes. And when I got done, I was a complete train wreck. I could barely undo the straps. I like 
from like I was on my hands and knees trying to recover after the, the rowing. Um, I took a week and thought, all right, I'm gonna try it again, but I'm gonna do just nose breathing. I did the exact same pace with nose breathing. Um, I finished, it was like maybe three or four seconds different than what I had done before with the mouth breathing. And I was in a completely different headspace. I was able to calmly undo the straps. I stood up, I took two deep breaths and walked away and I was good to go. Like no panting, no deep recovery. Like it was a stark difference in the two events just on how I was breathing. Um, so I started doing more nose breathing with all my training and asking my clients to do it as well with their loaded pack walks and some of their different workouts. And it makes a huge difference uh, once you get into elevation training. Um, physiologically for your body. Um, the, the benefits of it are just too great to really ignore. And I think since most of the, the work that you're doing as a hiker is that submaximal capacity aerobic wise, let's focus on nose breathing and just make that system more efficient in the process. That's it's really cool because I don't think I've ever heard anyone say you put an emphasis on nose breathing as part of you know, training for hiking or anything like that. Uh, so that's, that's, you know, like it kind of boggles my mind that it can make such a difference. And I'm, I'm curious to try that on my next big hike. Yeah. And like anything else, like the first few times you do it, it might feel really slow or that you're, um, you're not able to breathe as much, take a mouth breath. And I'd say if you're doing like 90%, 95% nose breathing, um, as you're getting into it and having to take a few big gulps of air, like that's fine, you know, certainly do that and, and just feel um, feel the response from your body. You know, do you feel like you're in more control or less control? Do you feel like you're going slower or faster? And then if it's a hike that you've done consistently, maybe time it with your nose breathing and then do it once with however you wanna go about it, you know, mouth breathing or not, and see what kind of difference there is or see how much better or different you feel with one versus the other. Um, Really, it, just getting yourself some exposure to that and trying these things can have a pretty big difference. Um, and there's a few courses out there you can take. There's um, Brian McKenzie as uh, a trainer. He's got a, a class, I think it's called The Art of Breath or something. Um, Google has got all his, his stuff. Um, or Shift Adapt, I think, is his new site. And then there's another book. Um, oh, I forget the guy's name. But he uh, does specifically some breathing work and talks about the, the benefits of nose breathing and he's got some specific tests and things you can take um, to, to see kind of what your uh, your capacity is for nose breathing versus mouth breathing and all the health benefits associated with nose breathing versus mouth breathing. Hey Lee, so one of the things you talked about was kind of a benchmark hike, you know, and, and how that can be a useful tool for kind of measuring your progress over the course of your training. What does that look like in practice? I mean, what, what, kind, of, what kind of hike would we, uh, would make a good benchmark for, for, for me, let's say? Um, so something that's easy to get to for one. So I would say convenience is gonna be a pretty big factor. Um, if it's a local hike that's near you, that's six miles long, perfect. Like that's a really easy, accessible place you can consistently test and measure yourself. Um, if, if you don't have that available, uh, it gets a little more tricky, but there's other things you could do. There's a thousand meter or a thousand foot step up test you could do. So you would take a box, for example, measure the height of the box, and then get out your calculator and do the math to determine how many steps you need to do to reach a thousand feet of elevation gain. And you could do some step ups on that box to get to that point. 
um, and then use that as kind of a measuring stick also. Um, and I think outside of like objective tests, we're actually getting like a time or some sort of measured variable subjectively. How do you feel? If you've done this hike numerous times before and you've been doing your training, does it feel easier now? Do you feel like you recover quicker? Are your muscles as sore or less sore? Um, is your breathing any different? Are you carrying a heavier pack than you were before, but doing the same time? You know, looking at some of those, those other variables can be pretty important outside of what was my time, what was my heart rate, what was, um, it was the, the distance and, and all those different factors mixed in there. Um, and I guess it also depends. You know, if, if you're looking to do more elevation versus distance, you're, that's going to change maybe what that looks like for you in terms of preparation. Um, if you're doing something like um, the JMT and you're, you're looking at doing 12-mile days with a 30-pound pack, Perfect. That gives you some direction, I think, on where you need to go for your training and finding a hike that might have some elevation in it and maybe get you a little bit of distance as well uh, where you can work up that pack weight. Maybe six of them in Southern California. I don't know. Just, yeah. Just wink, subtle, wink. Yeah. Subtle, subtle, plug, subtle plug for Jeff and the six-pack of peaks because that's kind of how the six-pack of peaks was invented. Yeah, that, was, little, that yeah. was part of our training yeah. regimen for the John Muir Trail. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I feel like we've asked all these really responsible questions of you, you know, like what having like a healthy guy. So let's kind of just let's kind of like like let's kind of make let's let's finish with some more like kind of fun hiking stuff. Like you 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 hiked the PCT. Like what was your favorite stretch of the PCT when you did it? Uh, I know that's always a hard one to answer, but yeah, Washington for me was my oh, favorite. Really? portion um but there is one one pass in particular it's called grandview pass it's in oregon um once you get to the top of grandview pass and you look north you can see mount rainier for the first time and in my head in that particular moment that's when the entire hike clicked it was like okay i mean you've been hiking for months at that time and it felt like a series of smaller you know four or five night hikes and it's hard to conceptualize how far you've gone. And as soon as I saw Mount Rainier, my brain was like, right, that's it, like home. I lived in Seattle at the time. Um, and I just like sat there stunned, just like goosebumps, just like, holy cow, like it, it just hit me at once. Um, that was a, probably the most memorable moment I had on the PCT outside of like start and finish and, and stuff like that, kind of the, the standard ones. But Washington State as a whole was spectacular. Um, well worth the effort to get there. Um, Northern California, I actually liked. I thought it was really pretty up there. I don't know that I like the ascents and descents that much, but the terrain was gorgeous, so it kind of made up for it. Mm -hmm. Nice. And do you have any other favorite backpacking trips, or have you done any like other through hikes other than the PCT, like shorter ones? Have you, you know, done like the JMT or done like you know Wonderland or any any other hikes since? I tried repeatedly to get a Wonderland trail permit, and it never worked out. Uh, the year I actually got a permit, there was a wildfire in the park, and it basically shut down uh, Rainier National Park. And we called the rangers right before we left, and we were thinking about going down there. And she said, well, you could go, but we don't really have any staff, and there's a snowstorm coming that's basically going to put the fires out. So my advice would be not go. Aww. <laughs> All right. So never got to do that one. Um, the JMT just through doing the PCT. I've hiked it pretty extensively in the Tetons. Um, I've done the Teton Crest probably a dozen times. I absolutely love that that trek. Um, it's just, yeah, it's hard to beat. Um, my next trail, if if someone pinned me down, would probably be the Pacific Northwest Trail. Um, that one holds my attention the most. I think it's 
it's more manageable with my schedule and business to do something that's maybe two or three months versus a four or five month commitment, which makes it a lot harder to step away and, and get back into business when I come back. Yeah, the Teton Crest Trail is amazing. I, uh, Jeff and I did that with uh, our friends. We've talked about it in the past, but I just um, went back and looked at my photos and redid a reprocessed a photo uh, from that. And just yeah, man, it's just so many amazing views from from you know just being up high in those passes and everything. It's just it's stunning. That's a great one. Well, and you're not too far from it now, right? I mean, no, yeah, just uh, 90 minutes south of Yellowstone and 90 yeah. minutes uh, west of the Teton, so it's yeah. great. And, it, and it's crazy. I mean, 20 years ago when I lived in, in Jackson Hole, I could go to the the park office, I could pick up a permit. It didn't cost anything at the time. You didn't have to have bear cans. It was a whole different process now, where you have to do the lottery and watch the bear can video and do the whole process. So definitely more competitive and definitely more people getting out and in, in, into the Tetons, which is uh, a good and also makes it more challenging to, to go visit sometimes. Yeah. Well, I think most of us who've been doing it for a long time remember the good old days, or where a permit was just in case you went missing, not not like a quota or not anything like that. <laughs> I mean, you know. Like I, all the things, I mean, like I did like walk up and whatever now that you, you just can't even, you, you know, six months out, you got to try to reserve it. You know, it's, it's kind of crazy how much that's, uh, that's changed. I mean, it's great that more people are getting out, but I do sort of miss the freedom of being like, oh, I think I'm going to go hike the Zion Narrows and you just go and hike the Zion Narrows. It's not like, well, every year for five years at 6 a.m., five months ahead of time, I go on, you know, I go on the lottery and try to get it, you know, so <laughs> Yeah, it's like the enchantments is, you know, yeah. it's there's something like 30,000 people apply for permits each mm -hmm. year. You know, it's ridiculous. Speaking of which, Chef, we should we should apply for the the enchantments. <laughs> yes, we like, should. Yeah. <laughs> and buy a lottery ticket at the same time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if we get one, you know, yeah. we're, we're, we're sure to get the other, you know. No, absolutely. <laughs> those those midweek walk up permits are key for the enchantments, that's for sure. But uh, even then, I think you're still standing in line with whoever else is hoping to, to get a day permit. So, yeah, it's nice that so many people are getting out. It is uh, unfortunate that sometimes it's really challenging to get into some of those places. You may have to wait years to get into them, but um, I don't think there's a perfect system for that. No, no, I, I don't. I don't envy the people in charge of, like, you know, managing wildernesses and backpacking and all of that. I, I mean, especially now just in the last few years with how much more, more popularity it's even gotten, you know, since the, since lockdown and the pandemic hit. So, well, I think one of the things that that's done is it's, you know, for those of us who've been doing this for a number of years, it's caused, it's forced us to kind of look at some of the lesser known yeah. options that are out there and, you know, explore new places that maybe weren't on anybody's radar yet. And uh, sometimes it works out and it's amazing. And sometimes it's like, that was okay, you know. Um, I'm thinking of the Ruby, Ruby Crest, Crest Trail. Yeah, Ruby yeah. Crest Trail. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of places that you can go and have a, an amazing experience in the outdoors that aren't overcrowded and that aren't, you know, like impacted by permit quotas and things like that. It just takes a little bit more digging and a little more research to find them. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm not going to, I was thinking, oh, Lee, so what's your secret place? But yeah. I'm not going to do that, you know? <laughs> or you can say it here and I'll beep it out. Say it here yeah. and I'll beep it out. Yeah, so, say it for us yeah, and yeah. we'll go beep. So the most beautiful hike I've done that no one knows about is a beep, you know, like that. <laughs>
I will say in places like the Tetons, there are a lot of places you can go in the peak of summer and not find that many people. Um, you just have to be a little more selective with the trails you're going on and recognize that a lot of people are taking the more popular things like maybe Jenny Lake hike or, um, or Hidden Falls or whatever. So if you're willing to explore a little bit more, you can definitely find places away from the crowds and get some solitude. The Gravant Range, which is right next to the Tetons, is spectacular and almost no one goes back there. Uh, Bridger Teton National Forest is in the area. It's very expansive, tons of great trails, um, and far less popular than, than the Tetons, which, I mean, you could you can learn to navigate without a whole lot of difficulty. So, Lee, did I miss, did we ask where you're based out of? I am in Idaho Falls, Idaho. Okay, thanks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no one's heard of Idaho Falls, Idaho, but that's okay. No, All well, right. I've, so we've interviewed a couple a couple on our podcast separately. We interviewed them that live in Victor. Idaho. So, and when you were talking about proximity to Yellowstone oh, yeah. and the Tetons, I was like, maybe he's intrigued, maybe he's in the Teton Valley. <laughs> yeah. I, so truth be told, my plan was to move to the Tetons, but I could not afford it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so Idaho Falls, I found to be affordable and within uh, like easy driving distance. So it won. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have spent the night right. in Idaho Falls. So, so I had heard of it. So yeah <laughs> it was a drive through yeah. it was a driving through scenario where i just got a hotel and i spent the night there and then i left but you know i think technically we're the gateway to adventures what the airport says so oh okay take, take that for what you will yeah that sounds about right yeah <laughs> all right so your trail name flick we always like to ask so how did you get said trail name <laughs> so actually it's my second trail name so the first one i had was wit um and uh, uh, it was known to be fairly witty on trail. The problem was whenever you got like a hitch or something, everyone wanted to know your trail name and you would say wit. And they're like, oh, well, like they're expecting something witty. And I was far too tired to explain or come up with something <laughs> witty. So I dropped that one after a couple of weeks, uh, realizing the, dif the difficulty too much with pressure. it. Um, way too much pressure. Um, and Flick comes from apparently a bug's life. I've never seen the movie, um, but there's a character in there, Flick, and I guess uh, personality-wise, I mirror it closely, although, again, I have <laughs> no idea, so I'm taking people's word for it. Um, <laughs> but I was also really good at flicking pine cones with my trekking poles as we walked. Uh, I like With good accuracy, I could hit uh, targets, I could flick sticks and hit particular things. So um, my favorite thing to do is just go down the trail and just clear off any of the debris and stuff that was on there using my trekking poles. Mm -hmm. And if I had to stop or if I missed it, it was a big disappointment. So if I could do it while I was walking, it was a huge victory. Mm -hmm. um, but I got pretty proficient. So flick, did, flick did you it. aim for your hiking partner's eyes too? Was that like part of the thing? No, if they were annoying, I could I could flick things at yeah, them. Okay, okay. Was, yeah. <laughs> now, is this a golf swing type of a thing as well? Are you lining it up, you know, and like you know, shoulders through, or is it more of a like more a, of a pendulum more, style. okay or like a fencing kind of thing where it's like yeah. flipping, you know okay kind of a walking sweeping motion as you're okay. going and cool. but i could hit small pebbles and things with with pretty good accuracy so and right. you, the trick is obviously like just hitting the rock and not hitting the ground so then there got to be like you know how accurate could i be with with like height of the trekking pole and distance with with shooting things so mm -hmm. i mean you got a lot of free time out there right yeah you got to use practice yeah. <laughs> get your ten thousand hours in you know yeah. and, and hey if there's a bear or a mountain lion coming your way right you know i you got it covered guys yeah, we're good exactly we've talked about nose breathing we've talked about you know all these other you know working out stretching do you have is like nutrition a part of your plan i mean do you deal with nutrition at all uh in the lead up and then also on the trail uh, somewhat, yeah. So I, 
a couple of things here. So first of all, when I did my three week, I was very intentional about nutrition itself. And my goal was to eat as healthy as possible and avoid a lot of the common uh, nutrition issues that came up for hikers. So I didn't have one pack of Duramin on my hike. I didn't eat any mashed potatoes, um, which I, I took as a sense of pride. And instead I focused on bringing out like maybe a bag of spinach or um, bringing out some olives or pine nuts, like different food additives to, to eat a healthier style. Um, but when I came back, REI, they had a journalist that reached out to talk to me specifically about my hiking um, eating style. Um, you know, I feel like if you're eating good foods, you're lowering your inflammation in your body, you're helping your body recover more with better like nutrients and minerals and those sorts of things. And I think uh, more overarching, you're also potentially impacting the risk of post-trail depression on the backside. So your gut bacteria is uh, very complicated and nuanced, but it produces this uh, hormone or chemical called serotonin, which is like the happy hormone. And like 90% of this hormone is produced in the gut. And if we're not eating the right foods uh, and feeding this bacteria, that balance gets upset and you may produce less serotonin, which can lead into more post-trail depression issues. Um, it, there's some other factors with post-trail depression that, that we can touch on too that I think are important, but nutrition is a big part of that. Um, and then also, you know, I think if you're eating well, your energy is better throughout the day. There's less crashes. Um, I think there is a potential risk to decrease injury again through nutrition. And as someone who hiked in his late 30s, I think it's different than someone who's maybe in their, you know, early 20s or mid 20s that can maybe handle um, a little bit less efficient diet. Um, but I think if you're wanting to set yourself up for success and um, feel good, nutrition is a big, easy one you can you can tackle. I don't do any specific nutrition coach with my clients. I kind of give them my approach to nutrition. And I also uh, have my folks uh, connect with Backcountry Foodie. And she's got a lot of great recipes in there that are designed for hikers that are lightweight and nutritious. They're more uh, vegetarian based, but it's really easy to add protein to those specific meals and really increase your kind of your flavor profile. So you're not doing ramen and pop tarts and mm -hmm. all those things. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, my favorite trail snack would have to be oatmeal cream pies. I absolutely love the Little Debbie's oatmeal cream pies. Mm -hmm. And that was usually like my, my one treat out there. Um, so, so I think with well, everything, oatmeal's it's, good it's for you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's, yeah. it's, it's balance really. Um, yeah. yet I think, you know, if you're in town, there's a specific approach you can take for, um, like giving yourself a better chance at recovering some of the, the, the poor nutrition while you're on the trail. So drink a kombucha, something that's fermented. It could be sauerkraut, um, yogurt, something like that. That's going to help that gut bacteria, um, stay nice and consistent and then just eat a big salad just get a salad in a bag mix it right there and just mm -hmm. eat it right out of the bag um, get those greens in and then you can kind of feed your cravings so get the burger get the beer do the, the all those things the talentes so do those but first i think kind of maintain your body with some of those those easier add-in items when you get to town mm -hmm. and then on trail a lot of those things pack really easy bags of spinach super light go with pretty much any meal um, I like flavor enhancers, so butter, olive oil, pine nuts. Um, the sun-dried tomatoes are really good. There's some oh, cheeses that are really good to pack out. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, super simple things that just add so much to a meal um, and really help out. So uh, I think that's probably one aspect of the hiking that most people could improve upon is the nutrition side of things. Yeah, there was a study that came out in 2021 where they – I mean, it was a study of one person who <laughs> through hiked the PCT and then they, you know, they, they took all of these 
measurements of their cardiovascular fitness and brachial artery flow and all of these things. And they found that it actually, he was in worse condition at the end of the trail, mainly because of the diet. And that's kind of what they said is that, you know, you know, coming off trail on your uh, resupply days and downing a pizza and a burger and eating fries and eating all kinds of putting, putting a bunch of crap in your body basically Mm -hmm. was probably not a good idea. So, uh, do, do you ever run, yeah do you run into like the issue of being palatable though right because obviously with altitude and that kind of thing you sometimes you got to get calories in your body and spinach you know I'll, I, I don't mind spinach so much down here but i don't know if my appetite isn't there if spinach is going to be the thing that you know a lot you know i'm in camp Ooh, i have spinach you know i know you know i'm not popeye i don't know if the, you know i don't know if that's going to be the my choice when i'm in camp you know <laughs> no, I mean, I think if you're finding foods that do appeal to you that maybe are more healthy than sure. not, so it's you're not doing yeah. ramen bombs and those sorts of things, like, yeah. um, there's definitely a better approach to take with nutrition. And sometimes it's just experimentation. Like, elevation can be trickier. Like, you need more calories. You probably need more fat. Yeah. Um, you know, that thermogenesis of your body burning. You know, if you're cold, you need to eat more. That your body um, digesting that food is going to help keep you warm. So the, the maybe the ratio changes a little bit with protein, carbs, and fat when you get to elevation. But I think moreover, if it's something that you can eat consistently, yeah, go for it, but make it as healthy as you can. Uh, Lee, tell us, you know, if people want to learn more about Trailside Fitness or how to get in touch with you and and the services that you offer, where can we learn more about about you? Where can they yeah, find uh, you? So trailsidefitness.com is the website. It's not very up to date, um, but you can look in there and see uh, a little bit of what I'm about as far as um, like services and that sort of thing. Um, if you're interested in following me on Instagram, I'm at trailside underscore fitness, and that's probably where I'm most active. Um, and I generally, any new follower that joins up, I send a message just to check in and see how they found me and I start a conversation. And it's more just to keep social media social. Um, so those are probably the easiest ways to find me. I'm on YouTube also. If you just Google uh, Trustside Fitness and I'll pop up in there. Um, I also write for Backpacker Magazine. So you may find a bunch of my articles uh, through their, their byline search. Um, a lot of those are behind the paywall, but um, there's a few that are open source. And uh, I think they're pretty good ones that are open source too. So that might give you some direction on kind of where I come at with my approach. And I'll just say you've got a ton of really useful, you know, sort of digestible content on both Instagram and YouTube. So it's a great, you know, definitely check out, you know, Lee's Instagram and and YouTube feeds because there's a lot of stuff there that you can, you know, kind of glean some great, great nuggets from. Uh, Thanks. I I try to make it easy and approachable. Not a lot of people like anatomy and that sort of stuff. So if you just make it short and sweet and show them what they need to do, it's way better. Actionable items are definitely the way to get things done. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks thanks for coming on, Lee. It's been a lot of fun talking yeah, to you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Awesome. You're welcome. This was, this was a good time. Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast and follow us on social media on Instagram at almost there underscore AP or the Almost There Adventure podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support us financially, you can subscribe to our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash ATAP. You can find Severia at Adventure Us Women, that's Adventure US Women, Jeff at The SoCal Hiker, or me at The Muir Project. Our title track, Almost There, is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. For more about this episode and all of our others, make sure to check out the show notes on our website, 
almostthereadventurepodcast.com. And for the third year in a row, we're dedicating March to Women's History Month by having an episode with an amazing lady every week. First up, Renee Patrick, a.k.a. She-Ra. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.